0: The, again the kind of popular stereotype we're used to where by the the war was fought by Cromwell and his roundheads against the king and the royalists and then, then Cromwell then killed the king and took power for himself is just not true
1: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Oliver Web Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Now, if there is one man who can unite British monarchists and Irish nationalists, it is Oliver Cromwell. And so today I'm talking about this huge figure with the historian and novelist Miranda Mallins. Now, Miranda has written two novels set in the period, The Rebel Daughter and The Puritan Princess, which involve Oliver's daughters, Bridget and Francis. We talk about how important women were in Cromwell's life, and then we go on to talk about the man himself, his rise during the Civil War, his involvement in the trial and execution of Charles I, and his behaviour in Scotland, and most infamously, Ireland. Many of you already have a view of Oliver Cromwell, but Miranda makes the case that we need to step back and look at Cromwell dispassionately. History is nuance. On our website, you can read about Charles I's trial, which was a total stitch up. It's in the show notes, along with Miranda's links. We've also got a piece on Charles' successor as king, Charles II, on how he was a modern monarch. So there's plenty of material on the period aspects of history. As ever, you can subscribe or give me a good review. I'd be hugely grateful. You can get hold of me and Miranda via the Twitter, but I'll hand you over to us both now. Miranda Mallins, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast.
0: Thank you, Ollie. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I'm uh, very pleased to be speaking to you. This is the first one I've done since I'm, I've come back from holiday. And um, I, I was reading your novel while I was on holiday. The, it's actually your second novel, but you told me to read it first. <laughs> so I did as instructed, The Rebel Daughter. Uh, and then your other novel, um, which was written before, but I guess you're recommending we read second, and that's The Puritan Princess. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I'm i not going to want you to give away any spoilers or anything like that, but um, I, it's fantastic story because it involves the, the – for our listeners, it involves the daughter – well, both each novel f- – is focused around the daughter of Oliver Cromwell. The rebel daughter involves Bridget Cromwell. And then the Puritan princess is his youngest daughter, Frances. That's right. Yes. So, um, and, and now the reason why I loved it, and I was just about to say, but then, you know, there's no point doing it when we're not recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to say how much I enjoyed it because it, it sort of all mixed around these there's such important parts of our history and it's a period of history that I think is becoming more and more well known. In I'd say in the last five years, we're getting more and more books like yours. Um, there are there have been lots of history books around, for example, um, Paul Lay's written a very good book on the uh, on the period as well. And then we've just I think we're just having a Robert Harris novel. Yes. Yes. It feels, it's
0: not to jump in. Sorry, but it feels for it. it feels to those of us who've been writing in this period for years like a very exciting time, like finally it might be our time has come with uh, and Jesse Child's new book, The Siege of Royalty House, uh, Philippa Gregory, another huge um, historical novelist, mostly associated with the Tudors and the medieval period has now moved into the 17th century. So, you know, it, it's our time. It's our time now.
1: <laughs> it is, it is. And it is such a rich um, rich area to, I guess, mine for, for a writer. Um, and, and I suppose... I know um I'm I don't think I'm giving anything away here to say you're probably slightly sympathetic to the um to the sort of parliamentarian side and the Cromwell side which is I assume you are at least
0: I am because, yes
1: <laughs> because because and you've got two uh two women in in this story uh in fact I think um all his daughters that married were married to important men. So they themselves grew up in a strong household. They must have been quite strong characters themselves.
0: Yes, I think so. Um, and, you know, just, just to sort of n- nail my colours firmly on the, <laughs> the, the mask here. Um, I mean, I, I I have to be a bit careful because I am a historian of this period. So obviously I try not to be too partisan. Um, but you can't kind of work in this incredibly dramatic, tumultuous Period of civil war and revolution, um, without feeling some sort of sympathy for one side or the other, or having some favourite characters. You know, we're all humans as historians, after all. Um, and actually, you know, r- rather than sort of being silly about it and saying, "Oh, I'm a roundhead," you know, "boo, uh, boo, the royalists, yay for the parliamentarians." Um, it's more that actually, I've been working as a historian on this period for 15 years, or 16 years, or something like that and it's always the parliamentarian side of this conflict that particularly grabs me i think Um, it's just so so interesting because it is one of those situations that we are quite familiar with in history of a big convulsion or a revolution or a civil war um, where the side that um, achieves a lot of change and overthrows uh, the status quo uh, then doesn't know what to do next and then all fall out among themselves as to what they want to create in its place And so, you know, what really gets me going about this period isn't so much King versus Parliament or Royalists versus Roundheads. It's almost Parliament, the Roundheads, you know, against each other. That's where I think it gets really, really interesting and exciting. Um, But yes, this is what these two novels are very much looking at this traditionally very male, uh, sealed, not kind of um, military history kind of period, but trying to look at it from... The perspective of the women who were very busy and very important and very interesting in this period, and in particular here the women in Cromwell's Cromwell's family, and they give us the way into this period. that is kind of very personal and about, shows a very different side of Oliver Cromwell as well, a very personal and sort of human human side to him. So uh, that was my my way in, certainly.
1: Yes, you describe um in in the novel uh. One of your characters, uh, in fact, I think it's the husband of Bridget, uh, Henry Ireton, who himself was a, a prominent figure, um, describes Oliver Cromwell in the novel as, as conciliatory, I think, mm. um, which is, is not really a word one uh, naturally associates to him, at least, you know, to the sort of to the layman. But, but um, he does come across as, as a very conciliatory figure uh, leading up to the trial Absolutely. of Charles I.
0: Thank you. I know, I, you're, you're getting it some really interesting stuff there, which is what I, I'm trying to get at in the books, which is um, to overcome some of these really ingrained stereotypes that we have in, in popular culture about Oliver Cromwell, where um, if we know anything about him at all, because this period, as you alluded to in the opening, is, is woefully neglected, I think, um, in our kind of popular consciousness. But if people do know anything about him, they tend to think of him as a dour, black-coated, uh military puritan killjoy who kills the king and cancels christmas and gets his kicks from pulling down maypoles and uh, terrorizes the irish and does all these awful awful things um whereas actually in reality the man himself was much more of a middle-of-the-road moderate conciliatory pragmatic tolerant um political figure and, and military figure than than we tend to think and um the what I felt I could achieve coming at this as a historical novelist rather than as a historian um, was to show that side of him um, in in a sort of fictional context. But I'm really trying to get at you know the, the real history underneath, um, which is to overturn some of these myths. Absolutely.
1: Well, it's 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 an enjoyable story throughout. I, I mean, there were, there are were bits in it that I really liked um, that. I guess you wouldn't be able to include so much if you're writing a history book. And I know you are writing a history book, but, um, but particularly food, you describe food really well in it I, and oh um, thanks that's great <laughs> no one else
0: has said that to me Ollie. that's really nice that's well it.
1: there are there a number of meals described that um that that just i mean there are lots of apple apple um puddings that you, that you <laughs> write about that i get interested in I, I you know i have to confess food is an important part of my life and so i love it when it's described really well in 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 novels
0: well, it is it is something that the novelist can do. You're absolutely right that historian can't. I mean, I've spent a lot of time over the last few years grappling with this kind of Jekyll and Hyde nature of my writing career, where half the time I'm a historian and half the time I'm a novelist, and and how to how to make the two relate and um, help each other and not get in the way of each other. But something, something which is nice for the novelist is that you can do a lot. You have the excuse of doing a lot of that world building that actually really, if you think about it, really well written, kind of pulsing, exciting, gripping history should do that too. It's all, It's just that it often gets overlooked by, you know, uh, some, some of the... more dry dusty historians you don't really want to go into that but you know what 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 got me into history in the first place as a as a child and when I was young was thinking about the real lives that people lived and trying to imagine them and trying to put myself in their shoes and that that's where the novel really comes into its own I think I mean, I I started writing fiction about, um, instead of history, about the women in Cromwell's family, mostly because I started trying to write a non-fiction book about them. And then I just found it really frustrating because I kept having to say things like, I imagine Mrs Cromwell missed her husband a great deal when he was on campaign, or, you know, we don't know for sure, but probably this or probably that. Because as so often with history, the women are so in the margins of the source materials and in the archives. They're there and we know from what survives and just from human nature that obviously on the ground in the day to day, they played an enormously important role in this period and in and in Oliver Cromwell's life in particular. And indeed, there's a new um, hugely comprehensive edition of all, of all of Oliver Cromwell's letters and speeches, which is about to come out with Oxford University Press. And um, one of the key findings of this by the editor in chief, Professor John Morrell, is that Oliver Cromwell had was much more comfortable with women than with men and had much more close and confiding relationships with women, particularly women in his family, uh, who he writes much more um, sort of confessional and explicit letters to than he does his his male relations. And Cromwell himself grew up in a household with uh, six sisters and he was the only boy. And after the age of 17, he was the only man in the house because his father died and he lived with his widowed mother for the rest of her very long life. Then he has his own very strong marriage and five daughters who, again, he lives with for most of his life. So he's surrounded by these women and they are living very closely with him throughout all these extraordinary events. And indeed, they go on this unique journey that he that he goes on with his life from tenant farmer of in living in rural obscurity to head of state living in the royal palaces whitehall and hampton court and these women go with him every step of that journey so fiction just enabled me to put them back into center stage in a way in which pure history uh, was failing to yeah
1: so because i was looking into his 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 mother as uh, he, he ma- His mother was Elizabeth Cromwell, wasn't she? Oh, yes, there's lots of Elizabeths. It's terribly
0: unhelpful. His mother, his wife and his daughter are all called Elizabeth.
1: But that may say something it, 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 that, he, you know, obviously his his mother was, well, obviously um, he didn't pick his wife because she was called Elizabeth, <laughs> uh, one assumes. Um, but um, his mother, w- was, was she very important to him then?
0: Very, very important, I think. Um, again, a lot of this has to be done, a lot of this... A lot of the kind of judgments we have to make as historians about this period have to come from a kind of reading of human nature and a reading in between the lines. You know, we don't have reams and reams of Cromwell's correspondence saying, you know, to his mother saying how much he loves her. But they do. She lives with him for the whole of his life, basically, apart from when he's away on campaign. And she even moves with him in her late 80s, 90s. She moves with him into the royal palaces when he's Lord Protector. Um, and he visits her all the time. He goes and talks to her about important things. Um, he's very, very upset when she dies in 1654, when he's head of state. And she's given a state funeral and buried in Westminster Abbey. Um, and also, I guess you have to think, again, putting yourself back into the family household. Uh, when Oliver Cromwell's father died very, you know, really quite unexpectedly and prematurely, Oliver has to come back from Cambridge, where he's been a student for only a year or so, and he has to hastily come back to the family home and take over the family affairs, the family estate, the business. And you you, you can only assume that he ran that business and ran that household with his mother. I mean, one of his first jobs as a 17 year old new head of household over the next few years was to help to arrange marriages for all of his six sisters, which I'm sure he must have done hand in glove with his mother. So, you know, yes, I think absolutely, definitely they had a close
1: relationship. And then his daughters as well, because we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, Cromwell and, and his rise and, 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 and all of that. But it is interesting um, talking about his relationships with the women in his life. His He, he had a favourite daughter, didn't he?
0: Well, he's popularly supposed to have done. Yes. I mean, peeling that away from. The, the myths and the, you know, the, the, the mythology and the, uh, about him and his relationships. Um, again, not to give too much away, but his, his uh, supposedly favourite daughter um, dies uh, quite young and unexpectedly. Um, and it's, it's mourning for her death that is thought by actually most historians uh, to have contributed largely to Cromwell's own death. He dies only a month after her. Um, basically from from grief, absolutely incapacitating grief, which plays upon the malaria and ill health he's already suffering. Um, so I think because of the kind of romance of this, and Andrew Marvell, um, who's the court poet at the time, writes this ter- terribly moving poem about um, their their sort of. Death scenes together, almost, and how how um, sl- you know the sort of slings and arrows of the battlefield couldn't fell Oliver Cromwell, but the death of his beloved daughter was the one thing that could could <laughs> mortally wound him. And uh, his, his his daughter is given a um, again a, a torchlit flotilla procession um, from Hampton Court down the river to um, Westminster to, to Whitehall. Where she is buried again in Westminster Abbey, and she's the only Cromwell who is still buried in Westminster Abbey, so that's terribly romantic. Um, so I'm, I'm saying all this really to suggest that because of this extraordinary kind of end, ending of their lives, which happened so closely together, I think there is this idea that this was his favourite daughter, and she was very important at the heart of his court and socially speaking. Um, but you know, he, Cromwell was very close to all of his um, all of his daughters, I would say.
1: And his uh, his daughter, um, Bridget, who's the the main the main character in the rebel daughter, uh, is she's quite she's very strong willed. I mean, she's in your novel. She's she's not afraid to um, give her opinion or her view in a number of meetings with other prominent members of the I guess I call it the parliamentarian side but as you said you know they all they're all fighting amongst each other aren't they yes um but yeah it, it she she comes across as this hugely strong um character do you think that that's what she was and and quite sort of and that's fairly common amongst the Cromwell um the, the the female Cromwell line
0: yeah yeah yes and no I guess I did very much base Bridget Cromwell my rebel daughter heroine as far as possible on what we know of her from from the real record um she was popularly known to be the most um, puritanical and uh, feisty, <laughs> and sort of strong-willed of the daughters, and also was very closely um, aligned to the cause of the army, the new model army, because she marries into the leadership of it. She marries Henry Ireton, who's um, a key leading figure in the army, and continues to live with him, and you know, and, and then a later husband, and with the army kind of for the rest of her life. Um, we also know from various accounts, such as um, there's, a, there's a book by um, the army wife of another parliamentarian called Lucy Hutchinson, who was a, a fiercely puritanical, and um, she writes actually in a very disparaging way of most of the members of the Cromwell family, because she finds them too uh, cavalier, too loose, too um, keen on the finer things in life. And the only member of the family she's got any time for at all is Bridget, who she thinks is um, is actually quite sort of um, serious and humble and, uh, um, you know, an, an excellent Puritan maid. Um, so, and again, we have correspondence between Oliver Cromwell and Bridget and uh, talking about her deep religious faith and worrying that she's um, over anxious about things and overly sort of... Um, uh, sensible and serious and godly so i i didn't make that up that is absolutely how we we think that she was um but then of course stepping in as the novelist to fill in the blanks i i very much tried to uh make you know make make a fully rounded character of her and place her at the center of the action
1: well the action itself is is it's um i mean it's such a rich period it really is uh and i've i've only really covered in the podcasts before, from a, a completely different angle, speaking to a, a novelist and historian, Mark Turnbull, who talked about mm-hmm. um, Charles the First, he's completely he's he's the opposite to you actually. He's well, he's a man.
0: We're good and... friends. We're good friends
1: though. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. But he, he's 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 uh, he's definitely a royalist. Yes. and And um, he's pro Charles the And I, when I spoke to him, I was very because uh, I have I, te- I have a sort of uh, a weakness for oliver cromwell i don't oh, jolly, I, good. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the namesake thing but um but charles the first having spoken to mark i became a, little, a lot more sympathetic to the charles the first and he comes across sympathetically in your novel as well um, i'm
0: glad to hear that because um you
1: know i sorry to interrupt
0: you but no I, not at I, all I, I i really don't like a sort of partisan Books which don't have time, you know, which don't allow the nuance of all these. These are all fascinating and incredible people, and they deserve to be, you know, done, done proper justice to them in in, in novels. So, good. thank you. Sorry, carry
1: on. <laughs> no, no, no probs. Uh, so, I just Oliver Cromwell. His rise is his ascent to, I guess, from a a, a minor member of the gentry to, well, first a senior. Um, Cavalry commander, and then uh, head of the army, and then and then Lord Protector. I mean, it's a staggering rise, and all within a very short period of time. Uh, he, what do you think uh, uh, it was about him that that sort of drove that? I mean, he he's a hugely strong-willed character, isn't he? Is that what is is? Is just a sheer sheer force of nature?
0: Well, I think in part, and it's such a good question because that gets to the heart of why there are so many of us in the in the academic world, at least, who specialise in and work on Oliver Cromwell. I mean, he is popularly supposed to have been uh, um, uh, had had more biographies written of him than any other famous Briton, and I, you know, I think the reason he inspires such study and such analysis is because he is so complicated and such a towering figure who totally comes to dominate the age he lives in. I mean, there, there are a few, there are a few historical figures you can pull out who truly kind of come to epitomise their time and live beyond the, you know, change the world around them. You know, the kind of figures who, then earn uh, the sobriquet su- the, 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 the of Brit you know, Alexander the Great or Napoleon or whoever, good or bad, and I'm not making a moral judgment, it, it's, just, it's just the sheer importance of that person. And as you say, part of the extraordinary, kind of compelling nature of Oliver Cromwell is this fact that he comes from absolutely nowhere, and he spends the first 40 years of his life in total rural obscurity in East Anglia, and um then you, you know, so then when he does show this startling military ability during the civil wars, and this is a man who's never had any formal military training, he's never fought in a battle, he's never even been abroad. I mean, he really is a, a, a sanguine yeoman, but with quite a quite a good family name, basically, but who's who's kind of hard on his luck. So but when he shows such startling ability on the battlefield, And then real kind of political mouse and tenacity, which gets him into the leading ranks of the army figures and then puts him in the centre of the political negotiations with the king after the end of the Civil War. Um, And then, as you say, ultimately leads to him eventually becoming head of the army, although I would point out that that's after the king's execution. So it's not a question that Cromwell leads the rebellious army that kills the king. That is another myth. Um, and then eventually is asked to become become Lord Protector and, and head of state, and eventually off, even off of the crown. Um, the extraordinariness of this of that trajectory has led to a lot of his contemporaries and people ever since to sort of see him almost in mythological terms and wonder, you know, where did this man come from? Was he was he was he prophesied? You know, was he was he actually of ancient royal lineage? As lots of people tried to claim when he was he was Lord Protector. Um, so he's 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 inspired this mythology around him because of this unique rise. I mean, there is no other equivalent in British history of a commoner like him ascending to become um, head of state with no claim of lineage, with no you know, with no um, Wars of the Roses, no you know claiming descendants, a, a descendant you know see, from, from a former previous monarch, nothing. Um, so that just makes it uniquely compelling and as to as to how this all happens, I mean, I think you've got to, you've got to say that it is a combination of the extraordinary circumstances where there was this vacuum, um, you know, and, and, and any man or well, woman could come forward and really show themselves and kind of, it, it, it's the kind of war that opens everything up, opens up a new era of journalism, the first era of proper journalism. Opens up all these opportunities. You have women running their husbands' businesses. You have younger sons making names themselves in the war who would never have inherited their estates in a previous era, and so they would have been nobodies. But then they become they become extraordinary national figures through this war. So the war is a great engine of um revealing talent talent just kind of comes up through the ranks in all forms whether it's the levellers preaching in london or or cromwell coming through the ranks of the army Um, but then you know you've got to say there's something a bit more special to him than that for him to have ended up where he did and i think he was a uh, he is described by a contemporary historian as a reader of men not of books which says a lot he had real insight into human nature He had a great talent for friendship and making friends across all political and religious divides he inspired huge loyalty in those who followed him and worked with him Um, he was very he was very flexible very pragmatic very tolerant very very grounded in the here and now i mean not a dreamer or an idealist this isn't a road sphere person this is absolutely a man grounded in the here and now which is one of the reasons i opened my book with him actually toiling in the fields literally in the earth of england because that's where he is um and then you know he when he becomes a head of state he really is the unifying figure who's holding together this very complex um alliance of interests and it's only really the dominant, his dominant force, which is holding, holding the whole thing together. So, sorry, it's a very long answer, but I could talk about him for hours. So.
1: Well, w- well, we, we'll try and try and cover as much as we can. Yeah. I mean, I could talk about him for hours. I think our listeners hopefully um, well, <laughs> well, will probably we'll fall asleep. Um, but, but so I just wanted during the Civil War or the English Civil Wars or the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, which I think, Uh, Having read an answer you gave uh, in an interview about uh, I think the Wars of the Three Kingdoms would seem to cover it a little bit better than the English Civil War, given there was so much conflict in Ireland and Scotland.
0: Absolutely. All the British civil wars or or absolutely. I mean, I think. I think it is certainly more than one war and it is not just happening in England. So anything, I mean, I'm not, I'm not as Cromwell would say wedded and glued to the nomenclature that we use, but, but I, something which conveys the scale of it, as you say, geographically and in terms of time, I think is
1: helpful. Now, his rise, he's, you've mentioned this, he, he, he's just a brilliant commander. And with no formal military training, which is extraordinary. Wh- which were the battles that really um, showed him to to, to be so, so brilliant?
0: Well, he starts the war with with early on. I mean, he really is a nobody. He's only he's only sort of well known in his tiny pocket of of East Anglia of, of, of Cambridgeshire. But he shows a sort of reckless um, bold. Um, attitude even early on. He he seizes Cambridge for Parliament even before he's actually almost been given permission to, to do so, and um, stops all the all the plates uh, of silver and the gold being sent out of the city from the colleges to to fill the king's coffers. Um, and then you know he has various other sort of battles in, in that area in Lincolnshire and the battle at Gainesborough, um, and and so sort of. As the years get, as the war goes on and on and on, you know, he's just given a broader and broader and broader canvas. Um, and so by the time that we get to uh, uh, Master War, by the, by the time we get to the later bit of the First Civil War, where um, Parliament decides that actually, uh, or rather there's an argument within the parliamentary leadership as to whether um, they really do want to defeat the king properly or not, and those who are arguing that, yes, we really do want to give him a thumping so that we can actually defeat him properly and negotiate with him properly, uh, like Cromwell, you know, argue for to have a new professional kind of army which they will train. And, and this is called the New Model Army. And once Cromwell's very closely involved in recruiting and training this fighting force, which is England's first professional fighting force, standing army, and the sort of um, beginnings of, of, of the British Army, really. Um, and once Cromwell's fighting with them, and we have the Battle of Marston War, you know, he 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 really shows there that he is a he's a fearsome cavalry commander. Um, but but yes, I mean, at, at, but then we have a second civil war uh, after the king capitulates, and you know they can't reach an agreement with him, and he invites the Scots to come and. Uh, invade England and then and then again Cromwell shows it's metal all over the country um, and you know fight, fighting the Scottish forces now and then the Third Civil War which is in um, Ireland and then in Scotland and ends up with the kind of miraculous, seemingly miraculous victories, there's you know victory at Dunbar which is completely against the odds, um, although that's also Colonel John Lambert who's involved with that. Um, and, yeah, you know, the Battle of Worcester uh, was the one that Cromwell always speaks of, spoke of as being a kind of crowning mercy and extraordinary event. Um, so, you know, he, he, he definitely has real star power and real brilliance on the battlefield. Um, but this becomes a potent cocktail, really, with his faith and his sense of providence, which he shares with a lot of the soldiers of the New Model Army where with every battle where they are undefeated they feel more and more certain that god is on their side and god is pushing them forwards and then this becomes this kind of unstoppable um belief system they all share um which is that you know they, they, they have to surge forward they have to take england in a new direction um so it sort of becomes self-fulfilling almost uh, that this this success success upon success upon success gathers the same momentum but
1: it's quite an amazing story. So, so the parliament forces, um, you know, victorious, and then, and then we, I guess just before the third civil war that we have, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we have this sort of the trial of, of Charles I. But just before that, I'm just interested in, in Oliver Cromwell, where he sits, because you have the, the army, which are quite radical aren't they? And then yes. you have the Parliament. Parliament is, is sort of looking more um, conciliatory. Yes. Wh- where does Oliver Cromwell sit um, within that dynamic. Well,
0: very much in the middle and caught in the kind of crosshairs of that that dispute. And it's something I try and get across in, in the novel, in The Rebel Daughter, is that he ends up being a bit of a go-between. He's trying to represent the interests of the rank and file of the army, who feel very, very angry and hot-blooded at this point, because they, they fought for several wars and lost a lot of men, a lot of blood. It's all been terrible. Um, and as a lot of them are increasingly beginning to see it, you know the king really is a traitor. Um, for wages.
1: And they haven't even been uh, paid either, have they? No, they
0: haven't been paid. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's there's, pra- there's there are real practical concerns here mixed in with the ide- ideological. They haven't. Their their pay is at huge arrears. Uh, they they haven't been granted indemnity for what they've done in the war, which is absolutely crucial. If you think about what that means, this is a civil war with all the complications of civil wars. So you're not on you're not on foreign soil fighting another country's standing army. You're on home turf fighting a shifting alliance of different people, and there are atrocities all over Britain. And there is the, the rank and file of the army at the end of the war are desperate for kind of legal protection and indemnity, saying that no one's going to come after them in years to come if the political winds change and prosecute them for what they were doing during the conflict. Um, which they're all terribly worried about. Um, so that's the, those concerns, they're also worried they're going to get shipped off to Ireland to, to suppress the rebellion over there. So all of these practical concerns in the army are kind of mixed into the their great faith, their great sense that they are God's instruments, um, and also their anger at the king for, for they feel causing all this bloodshed. So all of this is kind of whipped up into a storm. And Cromwell is very much sitting in the middle whereby his instincts. And again, this is something that a lot of people get wrong about Cromwell. He's not a radical at all. He's quite, you know, he's quite religiously sort of radical in some ways, but as a politically and, and socially, he's small C conservative. And his role at the Putney debates where the army all come together and try and argue, you know, this this idea about extending the franchise and maybe we could change the sort of constitution and all that kind of thing. He's very much trying to restrain all of that and saying and trying to argue for the status quo. And again, another really important point about Cromwell that I try to get across in this book um, is that until really until the 11th hour, he is trying to make a deal with Charles I. Um, he, like most people who fought for Parliament in the Civil War, did so not envisaging that they would abolish the monarchy and create a republic. They very much fought the war um, in order to uh, restrain what they, who they, a, a, a particular king they felt was overstepping his constitutional role. But they very much wanted the king to stay on his throne because that would be te- that would be so much simpler for everybody involved, and would have been a lot better a uh, lot better outcome for everyone. Um, so he at, at the cru- this crucial crucial times so was 1647, 1648. Um, he is completely in the middle of this where he's trying to make a deal with the king, um, which is acceptable to the army, um, but the rank and file of the army are quite cross and white uh, that he is doing these deals with the king and Cromwell very much jeopardizes his own standing with his men because of the fact that he's willing to negotiate with charles the uh, first but equally he's trying to represent the king's views back to the army vice versa and department um but it is just fundamentally irreconcilable and um, those, the, all of those interest groups, which is how we end up on this uh, sudden tumbling into um, uh, the revolution and the, the trial and execution
1: of the king, which was the outcome that so few people actually wanted. Yeah, so many times I've I've spoken to historians such as yourself, yourself who, who the eventual result is is the last thing that everyone wanted. Um, <laughs> the The trial of Charles the First. Then, what was what was Cromwell's involvement in that? Because the the, the the trial itself was a oh uh, Charles I plays a bit of a blinder in it uh, having jealous. not not <laughs> really done that up until then, but it is a stitch up what What, what, what part does Cromwell play in the trial?
0: Well, again, such an interesting topic and argued incessantly uh, by historians who are still arguing about it. At what point does Cromwell decide that the king needs to be executed? At what point? You know, how, how much does he control events? This is this is this is bread and butter for us us uh, to argue about. Um, but he he is very involved. Um, he is uh, one of the judges of the king. Um, him, his son-in-law Henry Ireton is also very closely involved in this. And then, when it comes to the, the point of um, actually signing the death warrant for the king, um, there are all these stories that he, that Cromwell forced the hand of other judges to sign, and, and that's always held against him. Possibly, it's, even we don't know certain whether that's true. Certainly, behind the scenes, he's a very um, forceful figure in this um but again where i always come back to with with this is that he he is terribly important but he is not acting alone and so the again the kind of popular stereotype we are used to where by the the war was fought by cromwell and his roundheads against the king and the royalists and then then cromwell then killed the king and took power for himself it's just not true he just did it wasn't as he wasn't as powerful as, as that at all and even after the regicide i mean i think he is undoubtedly very influential in the eventual outcome which is the king's um execution but then immediately after that actually the uh, the, the monarchy is abolished the house of lords is abolished and the a new commonwealth is created but within a few months um, cromwell is actually sent with the with the army to ireland and then to Scotland to suppress the rebellions happening there, which are seemingly a great threat to this new fledgling um, state. Um, and so Cromwell is actually away from the centre of power in Whitehall for two years or so. So, you know, the immediate years after the king's execution and the revolution, Cromwell's not actually there in the government. The government is the council of state and the run parliament that is governing in Whitehall. And he's just, uh, he's away fighting his, uh, his brutal campaign. Um yeah so so he he's he's terribly important but he's not he's not the be-all and end-all he's not a dictator he's not running the show
1: alone yes right well so you've brought it up um Cromwell uh, campaigning in Scotland and Ireland now Ireland is his most controversial probably mo- the most controversial part of uh, Oliver Cromwell mm-hmm. that still excites passions today um now are we being unfair um, in in damning him for his uh, actions in Ireland uh, because it was pretty brutal, wasn't it? It
0: was. It was horrendous. And actually, I went to Ireland uh, last weekend to Droda, where, where the scene the scene of one of these appalling sieges and massacres, and it was terribly moving to go there in person. It was really evocative to see. Um, and coming back to how you frame how, how you phrase that question. Um, Are we right to damn him? I guess you you asked. I guess what I would say is um, it is absolutely understandable that uh, the atrocities that were committed in Ireland in particular are very much held against Cromwell and that Cromwell is very much held personally responsible for those. Um, and that they, um, you know, upset people today because they were brutal. Um, many hund- hundreds, of thousands died, particularly in these two nasty sieges at Drogheda and Wexford, um, which I sort of always think of in a, in a probably unfortunate parallel as being rather like um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in that they are these uh, terribly brutal and swift put downs of towns which are being besieged um they Cromwell offers the terms of surrender that the towns withstand them say they won't surrender and then under the kind of rules of international warfare at the time Cromwell and his men are not as it were acting illegally by the standards of the 17th century by then storming the town putting all to the sword all these awful things that they do um but in terms of the the, the Japanese parallel you know the what then happens is that all the other towns in Ireland immediately <laughs> surrender <laughs> because they've seen this terribly brutal treatment of, of Westphal and um, So, from, from the army's point of view, you can see how these things arise. We're also now in the third civil war, so the, the kind of ante has been upped, the stakes are higher and higher and higher, the bloodshed's worse and worse and worse with each of these conflicts. There is uh, also undeniably a, a sort of Racist element, in the sense that the um, most, if not all, pretty much English people regarded the Irish as an inferior race of people, an inferior country, and you know what what Professor John Moore always says about he's a Cromwell expert about Oliver Cromwell in this context is that the disappointment is that Cromwell doesn't rise above the bigotry of his age. So Cromwell's own bigotry towards the Irish. Um, is is not Cromwells alone it is of its time um however painful and unfortunate you know and, and unjustified it seems to us today the other thing to point out is that uh, there's been a lot of work recently to suggest that this wasn't quite the sort of, religiously based um genocide that is often portrayed as it's often portrayed not least because Cromwell says some awful things while he's out there about the irish about the irish catholics being catholics and therefore basically being beyond the pale and although he was enormously tolerant um uh, at the t- of his time for um, those of other religious persuasions. Catholics were kind of were just beyond the pale for him as they were for most Protestants at this time, mostly because of the gunpowder plot and the Spanish Armada and the idea that Catholics were actually a political threat. So it's not just that they're a different sect that, that he doesn't agree with, because Cromwell himself was very open minded about people worshipping however they wanted to. But you know, Catholics at this point in the you only only let's let's remember 60, 70 years after the Spanish Armada, within living memory of the Gunpowder Plot, you know, Catholics still exert this this terrible fear and hatred uh, on upon Protestants, and there is, is also this sense of that the army is going over there to put down this rebellion, to and also to uh, re- avenge the Protestants who. Uh, they think have been killed in 1641 and before the Civil War, there are rumours of all these Catholic on on Protestant atrocities in Ireland. Um, So yes, so so there is, you know, there's a a lot going on there and it is absolutely dreadful and all of us who work on Cromwell and on this period very much square up to this and want to understand it, want to understand it better. I would just end this very long answer by saying you did ask about should we judge him and I'm always very, very careful of that as a historian because you know, I don't think it's our place to to judge um, what people did 350, 400 years ago. And this is why it's the answer I always give when people at drinks parties uh, have a go at me and say, oh, but was Cromwell a good man or a bad man? And I always try and say, i that's probably rather po-faced and irritating of me, but I always try and say, well, I don't really think of it like that. I think, is, is he important? What did he do? And why does he matter? You know, that's actually what we as historians are doing, isn't it, in studying the past. It's not uh, it's not trying to um, uh, whitewash or, or rehabilitate uh, people's people's
1: reputations. Absolutely. But but one thing that has rehabilitated his reputation somewhat. And I completely take on board what you were just saying. Um, but you've mentioned other religions that he was quite tolerant of. And and I think he'd he'd been quite tolerant towards the Jewish Um, Jewish immigrants I think and he had allowed a a large number into the country which they hadn't previously been allowed to come
0: in. Absolutely he did he was responsible for readmitting formally readmitting the the Jewish population who had been uh, expelled from from Britain centuries before and actually he is still credited with that uh, amongst many um, uh, Jewish people today it's quite interesting that he's he's got a better reputation in some in some of those um uh, 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 areas and communities that, that he does in others. Um, but, but also with, with Cromwell, he, he does believe very firmly. He's quite Elizabethan in this sense. Queen Elizabeth is a huge hero of his and his family's, and they made their name and their wealth under Queen Elizabeth. And he does actually continue Queen Elizabeth's idea about not uh, uh, having windows into men's souls, and that as long as men don't cause political strife, as long as they're not seditious, However, people want to worship in private is sort of their own business and Cromwell Prom- really is like that. He really isn't someone who's marching into people's houses and berating them and, you know, throwing things and telling them how they want, how they should worship. And I get, I very much try and pro- portray that particularly in The Puritan Princess, which is the, the, the next novel about him as, as Lord Protector. Um, he has a lot of friends. Uh, he's friends with some Catholics, he's friends with some Quakers, he's friends with people across all of these Puritan sects and denominations, and he has a lot of time for all of them. He, the, 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 the best way to understand Cromwell in, in his attitude to a lot of religion and politics is to understand that he's not interested in forms. He's very much interested in the end goal, and he's not very interested in constitutional forms Uh, religious doctrine exactly how religious services should be structured which book everyone's using is it the prayer book is it the you know is it the bible is it this is it that he's just interested actually in in people's godliness and people's dialogue with individual dialogues with god and how, how nearly how closely individuals i guess bring god into their lives and live with him as part of their daily daily life that's what interests him He's much more about spirituality than about, uh, uh, you know, the the, the cr- crossing the T's and dotting the I's of particular doctrine.
1: Well, we're, we're running out of time, but one thing I wanted to cover was um, Cromwell's, he, he becomes Lord Protector, but he's offered the, the title of king, isn't he? He is, yeah, in
0: 1657.
1: Now, why did he, he sort of steps back, but he's wavering, isn't he? He's very close to, to going for it. And which, you know, spe- speaking as an Oliver, it would have been wonderful to have a <laughs> I
0: know, King Oliver the First. It, it's so fascinating. And you know, it, it's so fascinating to me that I did my whole PhD about the offer of the crown to Cromwell. Because... It's this—it's this amazing kind of counterfactual moment of what would have happened, you know, to, to British history if he had become king, Oliver, the first of his name. <laughs> but he—he's effectively living really like a king in the later years as being Lord Protector. You know, he's, he's being styled His Highness. he's his investiture as Lord Protector is basically a coronation, just without a crown. And, you know, he's living in the state apartments, he's receiving ambassadors, you know, he's travelling and down the river in, in livery gold barges. You know, he, to, 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 to our kind of particularly modern eyes, looking at him now, he's absolutely, absolutely a king. Um, but people, there's a particular faction in Parliament and the court that want to make him king. Because they think that this is going to actually be the most stable form of government with the best chance of lasting Because you know monarchy is so deeply embedded in in the British in the English um, Culture and inheritance and we we know that to be true because we still have it today you know it is so so important to us as a nation and You know when, when they did get rid of the king get, get rid of the monarchy again as we discussed earlier slightly accidentally <laughs> and not not on purpose you know, they try and replace it with all sorts of different uh, Commonwealth Republican experiments, but none of them, are, none of them quite hold, you know, none of them are popular enough. None of them, none of them please enough of this you know, hugely broad coalition of interests that has, that has pursued the war against against the king in the first place. So, yes, various people think, you know, well, let's, hit. Well, let's just kind of square the circle by bringing, bringing back monarchy. But at least we're going to choose our monarch. We're going to choose Oliver Cromwell. So, you know, we're not going to have a, a Stuart back or any kind of problems like that. So it's a very attractive solution. But from Oliver's point of view, he this is one of his great moments of, of, of dialogue with God and, and conscience, you know, reading and searching and wondering and kind of it's all very epic and earnest. Because he, he can see that this would appear to be terribly hypocritical if he became king, um, which in fairness, you know, we, 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 everyone would have said that and would, would still be saying that. Um, but again, this comes back to all these fundamental tensions within Oliver himself, which represent the tensions in the nation at large. He fundamentally is a monarchist and a conservative does believe that actually, if all things are equal, probably the best and most lasting form of government is a constitutionally limited monarchy. And he's suddenly in the position where actually the the only way of achieving that is for him to become the king. But, you know, there's a voice inside his head saying, hang on, we've just been through all these wars, I've fought all these battles with all these comrades (laughs) who would just think I was the worst possible hypocrite and self-server if I do this. And he can't bring himself to do it, basically, he can't. And he thinks that it will uh, upset the army, which is still a terribly important kind of political player at this point, and is a key reason why the Cromwellian regime cannot cannot eventually last, is because Cromwell cannot find a way to integrate this huge standing army into national civilian civilian life. So we don't get King Oliver, but you know, wouldn't things might have been very different if we had done?
1: Indeed, indeed. Um, now, my final question really for you is uh, and you've mentioned at the beginning, um, he dies very soon after his daughter, um, supposedly his favourite daughter, within a month or so. The date that he dies is the 3rd of September, which is a for our listeners is a key date for Oliver Cromwell. Lots of things happen on the 3rd of September, um, but he does die. And then um, I, what I wanted to ask you is. Um, what happened to Oliver Cromwell's head? <laughs> and, and the reason I'm uh, going to my mother says that our family has
0: it. <gasps> no, she doesn't, does she? She does. Wow. Oh gosh, you've got to get me in a room with her, I want that scoop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, what, what happens to his head? Well, it's such a great story, and uh, it, it, to try and flog as many of my books as possible, readers do pick up The Puritan Princess because uh, what happens to Cromwell's body and his corpse and his head is all of this key part of the plot. So yeah, do 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 read. But yeah, basically, uh, poor old poor old Oliver is uh, uh, dies in his bed, basically a king, all very peaceful. He gets buried with all sorts of, with with state funeral in Westminster Abbey. And then a couple of years later, when the king comes back at the Restoration, he's his corpse is dug up. And uh, lies in a coffin in the Red Lion Pub in Hoban, which is still there. For some reason, it lies there for a night or two, and no one really understands why. So there's all sorts of myths about body snatching and and all sorts of possible possibilities of what happened to him. Um, and there, but then his corpse is is strung up at Tyburn. It's hung, it's hung, drawn, and quartered uh, posthumously which is a pretty grim uh, spectacle. And in fact, you'll find it as the opening scene of the Puritan princess, because it's, a, it's, it's just an extraordinary scene. Um, <coughs> and then the, I guess what, the, the, what the, the exciting story after that is, what happens to his body, his headless body, um, and, and his head? Uh, probably the most likely explanation, sorry to Ollie's mum. Is that his head uh, makes its way through the hands of various private collectors, having been up on a spike on, on Westminster Hall for ages, rotting yeah, as, as was the, the, <laughs> the uh, 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 as was their, their want at, at that time, um, but then eventually makes its way to Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge where it was secretly buried somewhere in the chapel, and no one knows the exact location. Um, and his corpse, his headless corpse was probably chucked in a pit under the gallows uh, at Tyburn, which is now now where modern marble arch is. So that's probably where he is. But, you know, it's a great story. We don't know that for certain. He could be anywhere, so keep an eye out.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a a nice way to end it. So, um, Miranda, thank you so much for your time. Rebel Daughter, Puritan Princess, um, really highly recommended. And what are you working on at the moment?
0: Oh, well, I'm going back to to uh, proper history, proper nonfiction writing, and I am writing a book, a sort of family or dynastic group biography of the whole Cromwell family and uh, tracing them, linking them back to Thomas Cromwell of uh, Wolf Hall and Henry VIII fame. So uh, I'm really wanting to reinsert this amazing family into the history of the Tudors and Stuarts, which uh, I, I think they should, they should belong to that.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And you're also, you have your own podcast, don't you?
0: I do, I do. That, that, that's hot off the press, because um, I have a new podcast, which I'm co-hosting with my fellow historian Paul Lay, and it's going to be called 1666 and all that And it is about all 17th century history, so not just Cromwell, uh, although I'll bring Cromwell in whenever I can, obviously, but it is about all 17th century history and British, European and world history, uh, cultural history, social history, art history, you name it. Um, And we are hoping to launch in November. We've already recorded a few episodes. So uh, yeah, watch this space and I hope some of you, some of the uh, loyal um, aspects of history listeners will come along and listen to us as well.
1: Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure there are links when they're they're available. Um, Miranda, thanks so much.
0: Thank you, Ollie. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Now, coming up, I have a chat with Robert Harris, the hugely successful author of Fatherland, Archangel, Munich, V2, The Ghost, and now Act of Oblivion, his latest novel, set all around the period immediately after Cromwell's death so we've got a bit of 17th century double bill here. It's the tale of a manhunt of the killers of Charles I, and Robert and I chat about the history of the period, so I do hope you can join me. In the meantime, thank you, and good night.